Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. We live as distracted people. We are distracted people in a distracted world. Perhaps you could think about it this way. Um, Just like the Beatles sang the song, A Day in the Life, a day in the life of many of us looks like this. We wake up, we reach over for our phone, and as soon as it is in our hand, we fire up Twitter. Once we're out of bed, we begin to get ready, and as we get ready, we listen to a podcast as we do. And then uh, on our way to work, on our commute, uh, we get the latest news. And then once we get to work, we fire up our computer and we start working where we have five tabs open on our computer as we multitask badly. Because after all, we still need to keep that Facebook window open because what if one of my clients contacts me through Facebook Messenger? This is not, I'm not goofing off. This is just what I need to be doing. Uh, you know, LinkedIn is probably good to stay open just in case I get that connection that I've been waiting for. And so we multitask badly all day. And then we listen to Spotify on the way home. Uh, we get home and we pull out our favorite kitchen and cooking app on our iPad to help us with dinner. Or maybe you just get DoorDash or maybe you just get Uber Eats or maybe you do whatever the case may be for you. And then after all of that attention that you have given to all of those things, you're absolutely exhausted. And the only thing you can bring yourself to do is to throw on Netflix and binge watch the latest series. Tiredly, you crawl into bed and fall asleep to the glow of Instagram. Now, many of you might hear that and say, well, I don't, I don't do that podcast thing, so that story's not me. <laughs> I don't do, and you pick out one of those. You pick out like, I, 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 I'm not one of the sheep on Facebook, so that's not me. And you pick out one particular part of that story or another, and you kind of quickly move on and go, well, I'm glad he's not talking about me this morning. But all of us, every single one of us, whether we are completely plugged in, whether we are very online or not at all, we breathe this air of distraction, this inattention, this inability to sort of sit. And this is not unique to us. It's not new. But I think that it is something that in our culture we are particularly bad at. Let me show you another way that this shows itself in our life. You don't really think about the future. You don't. You don't really think about the future. I'm not talking about like tomorrow, right? I'm not talking about like meal planning, but I mean like actual thoughts about what the future is going to be like for you. You don't think about the way that your motivation comes from what you think about the future. You think of the future simply as a modified version of the present. 
Let me show you what I mean by that. When you think of the future, all you can think about is the next stage of parenting, right? I had a friend this morning, I won't point out who he is, but he was uh, running a little bit late because his, his new toddler had a blowout diaper and decided to rub it into the carpet, right? And if you're in that person's place, if you're in that person's moment, all you can think about is, oh my gosh, I cannot wait till my child is potty trained. The problem is once that happens, all you can think of is, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to this next moment. You, the only thing you can think about, the only way you conceive of the future is as a slightly modified version of the present. Think about it. What is it you daydream about? What are you about to think about in the future? Ah, yes, one day I will be done with school. It's just a modified version of the present. You know what? One day I'm going to get that next job and everything's going to be okay. That's just a modified version of the present. You know, this new friendship, this new relationship, this new thing that I've found, that's what's going to make me happy. And we can't imagine a future that is categorically different than the present. For us, the future is just a slightly modified version of the present. That's all we can think about. That's all we imagine. And so what happens is that we settle into our distracted lives. We settle into our distracted lives and we live as if this world is all that there is. And what happens when we do this, when we settle into our distraction, when we live like this world is the only thing that there is, we rob ourselves of hope and motivation. This morning, we're going to continue uh, looking at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at the hall of faith. And, and this morning, what happens is the author of Hebrews kind of groups three of the men who we call patriarchs together. It's kind of a rapid fire succession of, of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he does it really quickly. And so this morning, because he covers a lot of ground in Genesis, we're not going to read Genesis like we have been doing. I'll pick that up and tell you those stories as we go along. But what we're going to do is we're going to read Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, out loud and together, screen behind me. And then I'm going to read to you uh, verses 20 through 22, which is what we're going to focus on. Because these stories, the stories of Isaac Jacob and Joseph that the author of Hebrews picks out for us speaks into the fact that we are so settled in our distracted lives. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's word. Let's read Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 together. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now listen to verses 20 through 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. City Church, this is the word of God, uh, written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. 
This passage in Hebrews 11 shows us that there is a way out of our distracted and settled lives, of our lives that cannot imagine anything but the future as a modified version of the present. But it does this in a really weird way, as it sort of picks up the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, it sort of focuses on a certain portion of their lives. It focuses on the very end of each of their lives. So what I want to do is just give you a quick rundown of the stories that the writer of Hebrews has in mind. First, the story of Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau. This is not something that uh, went according to plan. In fact, uh, uh, Isaac's wife, Rachel, uh, or I'm sorry, not Rachel, Rebecca, helped her son Jacob steal the blessing that was meant for Esau. It, he went so far as to, to skin a goat and put that goat skin on his arms and the back of his neck uh, so that when his father felt him, he would smell gamey and he would feel hairy like his brother. Now, I just want to pause for just one second and point out the fact that imagine how hairy of a dude Esau had to have been if the way to simulate the feel of his skin was to put goat skin on yourself. I just, and, and, also, and also he was um, red-haired. Um, so like in my mind forever, um, Chewbacca is all I can think of when I think of Esau. That that is clearly what this guy looked like. So, so Jacob dresses up like his brother to steal the blessing from Isaac. And then Isaac shows, or, and then Esau shows up and Esau says, dad, where's my blessing? And his dad is visibly shaken. He is, as they say, shook. And, and as he, as he looks at his son, he begins to utter a blessing over him, but his blessing sounds an awful lot like a curse. And the best thing that he can give to his son Esau is, you won't always be ruled over by your brother. That's the best he has. And then Jacob, the one who receives the blessing, lives his life, and his name literally means shady. Jacob is not a great character. Again and again and again in Jacob's life, what you see is him deceiving people. You see him being shady. He runs this con that has to do with like old wives tales about mating rituals of sheep and goats. And he cons his father in a lot of things. And then he comes to the end of his life and he wants to bless his son, Joseph, his son, Joseph, who has saved the entire family from a famine. And, and the, the Joseph brings his two sons and, Jacob says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you, Joseph, a double portion by making these two sons of yours as if they were sons of mine. So, so put them here in front of me. I'm going to bless them. And Jacob does this thing where he crosses his arms and he gives the better blessing to the younger son. And even, even Joseph says, wait, wait, no, 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 dad, uh, dad, that's, that's not how we do things. Don't do that. And Jacob sort of says, no, nah, I did what I did. I did what I did. And then Joseph, the one who saves his brothers, knows that the Israelites are going to be in Egypt for a long time. And so on his deathbed, he says, when you leave, 
When you finally are able to go back to the promised land, here's what I want you to do. Take my bones. Take my bones with you. Don't let me be buried here in Egypt. Okay, these are kind of weird and bleak stories. Let's be honest. They are stories of people stealing the blessings from their brothers, about, about grandfathers swapping the birth order of blessing for their grandchildren, about Joseph sort of, yes, having the hope that the people are going to come out of Egypt one day, but living in the reality that it's going to be a long time. Why? Why does the writer of Hebrews highlight these moments? If you're going to tell stories of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, there are much better stories to be told. There are much more monumental, more uh, the effort of faith that came from these men. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what happened right near the death of each of these guys. I'm going to tell you what happened right at the end. In their final moments, not their finest moments. So what ties these three things together? What is it that sort of, in the mind of the writers of Hebrews, gets these three things and ties them together? I think the first thing that we see as we look through all of these stories is that these stories all happened outside of the promised land. All three of these stories, the blessings of sons in each one of these cases took place outside of the promised land. At the time that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, he was living in the deserts to the south of Israel. Both Jacob and Joseph made these blessings from the land of Egypt. They are, they are believing that one day God is going to make good on the promises that he made to Abraham. They are passing along those covenant family promises to their children, but all of them are doing it from outside of the promised land. They can't look around and go, one day my family is going to sit and live under that tree. Those hills over there, that will be my grandchildren's land. They're looking at this from outside side of the promised land. So they believed God even though they were not at home. Even though they were roaming, longing, anticipating a future. They they weren't settled into the status quo. They weren't settled in to the status quo that this was all that there is. Let me maybe put it another way. The kind of faith that all three of these men show in this moment is, is, is immigrant faith, is faith from another homeland. There's an author named James K.A. Smith that tells the story of, of a, a Jewish man who, who flees Germany in the 1930s. And he's able to flee uh, to Vienna. And after he flees from Vienna, he gets down to Milan and he, things aren't going to be any better for him there. And so he then moves to England and he lives in England for 10 years, but it doesn't feel like home. And so then he moves to Brazil and he writes about there is something about his life that seems like he'll never have a home, never be settled ever again. 
that constantly on the move, that nowhere is really home, is the way that our faith needs to look. This is us. The world as it exists right now is not our home. The world as it exists right now is ultimately not our home. But what you and I want is settled ease. We want a home. We want everything to be okay. We want everything to be easy. To have a place to put our stuff. To have a place to relax. But here's the thing, church. God never promised us a life of settled ease. Of of peace and quiet. Of everything being in the right place. This was not true of the lives of Isaac, of Jacob, or of Joseph. Joseph left the promised land by the time he was about 12 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery. Jacob left the promised land not too long after he came of age because his brother was going to murder him if he didn't. Isaac never ever was able to put down roots. These men lived as immigrants, not ever having fully hold of what God had promised them. But what do we want? I want God's blessing and I want it right now. I want God's blessing. I want it to come in a particular way and I want it to come right now. So God, pay up. God, give me. God, make this my home. But God doesn't do it. We think, we think that we deserve instant relief from all of our problems. We think that we deserve, that we have merited God giving us a get out of problem free card. That everything in life is going to be easy. And it's not. He never promised that. He never said that's how this works. It certainly didn't work that way in the lives of of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But it wasn't just that they had a faith that wasn't settled, that wasn't at home here. They also had a faith that was passed on to the next generation. You see, in, in each of these cases, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph knew that God's covenant is never just about us. It's about us and the next generation. It's about us and our children and their children and their children's children. That our faith is something that needs to be passed on. But for most of us, we're more concerned with our kids' academic development, with their social development, with their emotional development. We're more concerned about those things than we are about their spiritual development. Look, I'm, I'm bad at this. I, I was thinking about this this week. Am I more concerned about, about my children doing their homework or getting to know God? Am I more concerned about my kids' finishing their assignments or praying. And I don't just mean like 
perfunctory, like, like dinner prayer and, and bedtime prayer. I mean, like actually like learning how to pray. Am I more concerned that my kids know how to spell and multiply or that they know who God is? I fail at that. I fail at that. You see, we should be more concerned with our kids getting into heaven than with our kids getting into the SEC school of our choice. But for most of us, what are we aimed at? Well, my, my kid needs to get good enough grades to go to the school that I want them to go to that, that I went to. My kids, my kids need to get good enough grades to get the scholarship so that they have all the opportunities they have in the world. That's what we think about. That's what I think about. I'm more concerned with my kids' academics, their social life, and, and things like that than I am their spiritual well-being. And, and some of you are here this morning and, and, and you don't have kids, or maybe your kids are far away. And it's easy to look at this and go, ah, yes, those parents. Or, or perhaps maybe uh, not having children is a, is a source of pain. Uh, it, it's something that is a sorrow. I think in a really beautiful way, the fact that we are a covenant people, that we are a people bound together by the grace of Jesus, for, for some of us who are in that place without kids, without kids nearby, that provides sort of a conviction, but for others of us, it provides relief. For, for some of us, we need to be reminded of the vows that we as a church take at baptism. The vows that we take that we are going to help one another out. That when, that when my children or some other children are running around acting the fool out in the hallways there, that we don't get to look down our nose across our glasses and say, I'm glad those aren't my children. No, that we're responsible to help love them, to help care for them. And that's also a great opportunity. That's a balm. Uh, uh, struggling with, with pregnancy loss, struggling uh, with the inability to conceive is something that is common throughout our church and churches around the world and throughout the Bible. But one of the beautiful things that God does through his covenant community is says, yes, that is something that is difficult, but also there is beauty in the fact that you are connected to all of the generations of your church. And that's what Abraham passed on to his kids. That's what Isaac and Jacob and Joseph believed as, as each one of these things that they did that the writer of Hebrews points out is them blessing their children. But lastly, the faith of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph is a faith that looked and focused on the future. They were devoted to the fact that the world as it is now, is not our home. But here's the problem, church. We can't imagine anything but this world. We can't imagine blessing in any form but this world. We are so entrenched. We are so captured in our mind and in our culture by everything that we see right in front of us that we can't imagine another future. 
you know, it's interesting. One of the critiques of Christianity is that we are, um, is that Christianity is escapism. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. This might be one of the things that you might sort of say about Christianity. Ah, uh, yes, this is just a way for people to sort of feel good and, and, and look at escaping this life by just hoping in something for the future, that this is just escapism. But what that fails to see is how the anticipation of future joy can be a great motivation for us. Uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, the, or I guess it was just about a year ago, uh, the internet radio giant Spotify purchased a Brooklyn, Brooklyn podcasting company called Gimlet. It was their first sort of jump into the podcasting market. And, and as they did this, the company Gimlet ran a show called Startup that had chronicled the very beginnings of this podcast company. And so as they were being bought out, as they were being purchased by Spotify, they were recording themselves going through the process. And what they found was, was being acquired by Spotify sounded really good at first. Hey, we're going to make some money. Hey, this is going to be nice. But what they found out later on is that there was a lot of hard work to get their books in line. There was a lot of hard work to get all their papers, their documentation, to get everything ready. But as they went through this season of incredibly intense work of, of 3 a.m. board meetings, as they went through those moments, what they found is that they could persevere because of the joy of what they anticipated coming. They could push through those late nights, those skipped lunches, because of the joy of what they could see coming. They could see that their hard work was leading to a beautiful ending. And you see City Church, that's when we think about the future, that's what we're pointed to. A beautiful ending in Jesus. It's easy for us to think that, that these prophecies in the Bible are all about word searches and, and hunts for headlines as we sort of anticipate crazy things happening in the future. But the future is this. Jesus is victorious and he is beautiful. If you read Revelation in any other way than seeing that, you're probably getting a bunch of stuff off kilter. No, Jesus is beautiful and he is victorious. And that's what we anticipate in the future. Not some blessing of stuff. Not that I'm going to get a sweet, sweet house. Not that my property is going to be really nice and those people who were mean to me are going to get worse property than I do. No, what we anticipate, what we look forward to, what our hope is anchored in in the future is the beauty of Jesus Christ himself. The blessing of heaven is not anything that is there besides Jesus himself. That is where our future hope is oriented. Our faith is in nothing else but Jesus. A Jesus who looks at you who looks at your distractedness, looks at the way that you're unable to imagine a future as beautiful as he tells, it, tells you it is. Because ultimately that distractedness and that inability to imagine the future he tells us about, that, that's ultimately selfishness. That is ultimately us being 
pridefully focused simply on ourselves. And Jesus looks at us in our distractedness. He looks at us in our selfishness. And he says that it's bad enough, that it is, that it's bad enough that he has to die for it. But Jesus' love for us is great enough. Hebrews tells us that it's because of the joy that was set before him that Christ died for us. That's, that, that joy is you, church. That joy of Jesus, that thing that kept him going, that, that thing that made him willing to endure torment, that made him willing to endure literally hell on earth, that thing was you. And, and the Jesus who loves us that much is the anchor of our soul. What happens is that sort of love, when we understand it, when we wrap our minds around it, when we meditate and think about it, that sort of love always changes us. When we go face to face with the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus, we are always transformed. In a few weeks, um, a new series is starting on HBO called His Dark Materials. And in many ways, His Dark Materials is written as sort of the, the atheist uh, answer uh, to the Chronicles of Narnia. It's, a, it's an allegory um, that is a retelling of the world through this allegory. And in the second book of this series, uh, the second book is called The Subtle Knife. And, and in The Subtle Knife, there is this, this story of this boy who has a knife that can cut through the fabric of this world. It can cut through this world and he can reach into another world and bring things out of that world and into this one. Church, our faith in Christ is a portal to the world that is to come. Our faith in Christ is a way for us to reach ahead, to look ahead, not just to this world, but to the world that is to come, to look ahead and say, yes, there is hope there and I can have it through faith. There is joy there. And even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of not being settled, even in the midst of not truly having home, I can reach forward and bring that joy into this life now. There is hope, there is love, and there is joy that is not from this world that our faith in Christ gives us an opportunity to bring into this world. Or to put it in the words of the Lord's Prayer, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, even though we aren't truly at home, we have hope in Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who sees it through from beginning to end. And that beauty is what can capture our hearts. That beauty is what can set us aside from the distractions that we make of ourselves so often. Let's pray. <laughs>